What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. 1945 in review. The Mutual Network presents its annual summary of the news of the year. Featuring from Mutual's file of historic recordings, the voices of President Harry S. Truman, the late Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Dr. Lisa Meitner, discoverer of the secrets of atomic energy, to the Empire State Building crash. The actual sounds of history in the making. This was 1945. Tonight, your narrator is William Lang. The stars tonight in Bethlehem over the birthplace of the Prince of Peace shine brighter, and they have good cause. For this Christmas of 1945 is the first we have had in four years when a white snowfall is not a military problem, but means only that small boys will soon be on the streets with their sleds. This Christmas, tears of joy and of love and of welcome home will cloud the eyes of millions of Americans as their own particular G.I. stands before them. For millions of others, he is on the phone, on the transport, on the way. This is the first Christmas in four unspeakably long and bitter years that we are at peace. For 1945 was the year that the Second World War came to an end. 1945 was the year the Jap Superman regretted it was necessary to enter the temple, don the ceremonial robes, and dig the Harakiri knife deep into their vitals. 1945 was the year the so-called heroes of the Glorious Reich swallowed the arsenic in the envelope and crawled into a dark corner to wretch and die. This was the year of victory. God rest ye, merry gentlemen. I'm an American citizen. I'm married. I suppose you'd say I'm middle-aged. I have two sons. Uh, that is, I had two sons. One of them died on the beach at Iwo Jima. Since our son paid with his blood across the counter of history for the defeat of Germany and Japan, my wife and I want to know how we won that victory and what we are doing with it. Our other son is 14 years old. My wife and I want to know if we have to lose him, too, in another war. We want the answer to that. So help me, God, we want the answer to that. How did we win the victory? When 1945 began, the armed forces of the United Nations were on the defensive. A desperate German counterattack threatened to recapture Antwerp, Brussels, and Paris... The British were creeping through jungles toward Mandalay in spite of torrential rains, maddening insects, disease, and swarms of Japs. General MacArthur had a precious and very small grip on a corner of the Philippines. Franklin Delano Roosevelt began his fourth term in office and at his inauguration tried to summarize what we had learned so far. We have learned that we cannot live alone at peace that our own well-being is dependent on the well-being of other nations far away. We have learned that we must live as men 
And not as ostriches, nor as dogs in the manger. We have learned to be citizens of the world, members of the human community. We have learned the simple truth, as Emerson said, that the only way to have a friend is to be one. We can gain no lasting peace if we approach it with, with suspicion and mistrust or with fear. We can gain it only if we proceed with the understanding and the confidence and the courage which flow from conviction. As Franklin D. Roosevelt began his fourth term, America looked very much like a champion boxer in the late rounds, rather punchy and tired, but game, very game, knowing that in the next round, a Sunday punch would wrap the dirty buzzard up and send him home to Mama. That courageous spirit was captured magnificently in a song that appeared in January. It wasn't written by a professional tunesmith. It was written by a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. <laughs> on an island in the Pacific Theater, a band of battle-weary Marines sprawled on the sand while a USO entertainer told jokes from the back of a bulldozer. My wife has everything Dorothy Lamour has, only Lamour spreads it around better. <laughs> All right, you guys, break it up. We're going to take the Tojo. Come on, get your gear on. We're moving out again. Get your gear on. We're moving out again. Translated into language the heart would understand, it meant, say your prayers, brother. This is it. All the way down the beach to the Marines sitting idly, tossing pebbles into the water and trying to remember how Coney Island looked. To the Marines sleeping for the first time in 54 hours after a jungle patrol, it was always... Get your gear on! We're moving out again! To Marine sergeants... Al Carbuto of the 1st Marine Division, the phrase was a battle cry. The phrase was a song. Mutual discovered that song. And listeners heard it in an exclusive field recording. Get your gear on! Get your gear on! Get your gear on! Get your gear on! Now here's the story of the word that's known to all Marines. We think it's here to stay because we hear it every day. It started back in 42 when we sailed away. And now we're on the march, boys, and this is all they say. Get your gear on, we're moving out again. Keep your five-page interval and keep your voices thin. It's a word we hate to hear when we lay down all the gear. Get your gear on, we're moving out again. The word is getting famous as the song Sweet Adeline. To us it's just a tune that bears the same old grind. We'd like to change the word, but the captain has the say. So stand by, fellas, here it comes. The word is on its way. Get your gear on, moving out again. Keep your five-page interval and keep your voices in. It's the word we hate to hear when we lay down all the gear. Get your gear on, we're moving out again. Marine Division was looking forward to a date with a certain gal in Tokyo. Tokyo Rose, whose Mae West voice had propagandized for Japan over the shortwave radio. The boys decided to send their gal friend a letter. And here they are, from that same island in the Pacific, sending their love note. Dear Tokyo Rose, because for so many, many months now you've entertained the Marine Corps in general and the First Division in particular... We feel that the only gentlemanly thing to do is return the compliment. So we have a little number we're going to play tonight dedicated just to you. But first, Rosie. In regard to those cracks you've been making that the folks back home will forget about us out here in the Pacific when Germany surrendered. Rosie, I'm surprised at you. You know, ordinarily you're a pretty smart propagandist. This time you've certainly missed the boat. Why? 
Well, it's this way. You Japs with your bowing and scraping to the man of the house have about as much family life as, uh, as, well, as these jeeps parked out here in our motor pool. On the other hand, we and our mothers and sisters and dads and brothers have not only a devotion and a love, but we also have a mutual respect, and that's something you Japs couldn't possibly understand. Ah, Rosie, they haven't forgotten us out here, nor will they, and we haven't forgotten them. And now, as I say, just for you... We play Rimsky Korsakoff's Flight of the Bumblebee 29. by the middle of February, they had blasted the Jap out of most of the Philippines. In Manila, General Douglas MacArthur turned over the reins of government once more to Philippine President Osmania. God has indeed blessed our arms. The girded and unleashed power of America, supported by our allies, turned the tide of battle in the Pacific and resulted... In an unbroken series of crushing defeats upon the enemy, culminating in the redemption of your soil and the liberation of your people, my country has kept the faith. As General MacArthur spoke, certain Americans at home were busily engaged trying to forget the headlines. At a swanky party on Chicago's north side. Darling, what have you got there? Oh, don't tell me that's a bubble pie. It certainly is. It's the very latest craze. Haven't you seen it? No. It blows colored soap bubbles. Well. Watch, I'll blow some. Oh! Aren't they pretty? Darling, it's wonderful. I had two sons. One of them died on the beach at Iwo Jima. My wife and I want to know how we won the victory and what we are doing with it. As our military situation improved, Roosevelt flew to Yalta to confer with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. When he returned from that meeting... FDR reported to Congress and to the American people. Identifying me at conference was a successful effort by the three leading nations to find a common ground of peace. It spells, it ought to spell, the end of the system of unilateral action, the exclusive alliances, the spheres of influence, the balances of power, and all the other expedients that have been tried for centuries and have always failed. We propose to substitute for all these a universal organization in which all peace-loving nations will finally have a chance to join. And I am confident that the Congress and the American people will accept the results of this conference as the beginnings of a permanent structure of peace, upon which we can begin to build under God that better world in which our children and grandchildren, yours and mine, the children and grandchildren of the whole world, must live and can live. It is one of man's eternal tragedies that his great dreams are long and his life is short.
to the people of the United States. It has pleased God in his infinite wisdom to take from us the immortal spirit of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 31st President of the United States. The leader of his people in a great war, he lived to see the assurance of the victory, but not to share it. He lived to see the first foundations of the free and peaceful world to which his life was dedicated but not to enter on that world himself. The fellow countrymen will sorely miss his fortitude and faith and courage in the time to come. The peoples of the earth who love the ways of freedom and hope will mourn for him. The peoples of the earth did mourn for him. As President Truman said in that proclamation, they mourned from the moment they learned on the afternoon of April 12th that Franklin D. Roosevelt had left them and had passed on in a cottage on a mountaintop in the Georgia sunlight. The peoples of the earth did mourn for him. They walked the streets like lost children, weeping bitterly. An internationally famous actor, presumably used to moments of great drama, began speaking a requiem into a microphone, but lacked the strength to finish and was led gently away, sobbing, My president, my president. The peoples of the earth did mourn for him, and they listened with uncontrollable grief as Mutual brought them a description of the funeral cortege. As the caisson neared the White House, Tom Slater said, There are six horses drawing the caisson. One horse commander at the side, a sergeant in the front with the first two horses, followed by a private first class, followed by a corporal sitting on the third horse on the left. You hear the hum of the motors, all branches of the service on each side of the caisson, an American flag sim simply strapped across it, just below the wooden bottom of the caisson draped lightly and in a dignified manner with a fringe, black cloth, just the two wheels and the part of the caisson that bears the casket. And now, just below us, is the President of the United States, Harry Truman, as he rides quietly just below us. The other cars carrying the family, members of the cabinet, judiciary, Senate, Diplomatic Corps, representatives of our allies below us. It's a beautiful and a dignified sight. A sight to make your heart jump a bit faster. The crowd now, the caisson has passed, the crowd turning to each other and talking, discussing what they have just seen, realizing a very important moment in history just passed them by. The peoples of the earth did mourn for him. And their sorrow was personal. They listened as radio brought them word of the burial in a rose garden at Hyde Park. Walter Compton said, There were three volleys. And at the first volley, the little dog, Fala, jumped and barked very sharply. And I got the impression that perhaps that, too, was a last salute to Franklin Roosevelt. Then the drums started again. A bugler stepped forward and taps sounded forth over the lovely countryside in which Franklin Roosevelt has been buried. The pallbearers slowly rolled back the flag of the United States, which had covered the casket, folded it, presented it to the widow. And the people grieved, for they were his next of kin, all the people. They grieved as they will through so many distant Aprils. And the rose petals fell on the soil in the garden over the grave at Hyde Park. And the planet mourned a vagrant star.
At 7, 8 p.m. on the evening of April 12th, Harry Truman stood before Chief Justice Harlan Stone, took the oath, and became the 32nd president of these United States. Four days later, he appeared before Congress and said, At this moment, I have in my heart a prayer. As I have assumed my heavy duties, I humbly pray, Almighty God, in the words of King Solomon, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great people? I ask only to be a good and faithful servant of my Lord and my people. microphone away from the elaborate white buildings in Washington. Move it to New York's 10th Avenue, where a burly policeman finds himself talking to one of the youngsters in a tough, run-down neighborhood. What did you want, Jimmy? We just want to ask you a favor. Jimmy, if you're going to ask me to umpire another one of those wacky basketball games, it's no dice. My back hurt me for a week after the last time. Oh, it isn't anything like that. It's a... Well, we were wondering if you know of a place that that was sort of like a clubhouse. What would you want a clubhouse for? Well, like you know, there's a lot of different kind of kids around here. Italians, Negroes, Spanish, Catholic kids, Protestants, Jews. And, well, there's been too many fights. Mm-hmm. Last week, Joey Ferguson got hit with a pop bottle. And they had to take him to Bellevue and put stitches in his head. I see. So, me and a couple other guys got to thinking. And we decided the fighting's no good. Next thing you know, somebody might get killed. It's no fun living in a neighborhood like that. I see, Jimmy. We want to hold a meeting, get everybody together, and see if we can't get everybody to quit coming out on the street looking for an argument. So could you help us find a room to hold the meeting? You can bet your bottom dollar I will, Jimmy. I'll find your meeting place. You boys don't know it, Jimmy, but you've got hold of a big idea. Yes, sir, the biggest idea in the world. Men of goodwill, realizing that the globe itself was just one big neighborhood and that there had been more than enough street fighting, found a meeting place in San Francisco in mid-April. Not to draw up a complicated agreement, but simply to see if they couldn't sit down at the same table and talk things over. Addressing the San Francisco conference, Secretary of State Edward R. Stettenia said, Courage we must have to carry us through trying day delays and temporary misunderstandings and lesser differences to the fulfillment of our common purpose. And faith we must have in the ability of mankind to make peace with the same resolute devotion that the United, United Nations peoples have given to fighting this war. That vision and that courage and that faith inspired the great American leader whose life was given for the cause for which we have, we have met, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It is only with such vision and courage and faith expressed in a thousand different ways that the United Nations have been able to travel so far along the hard road to final victory. It is only with this vision and this courage and this faith that we shall make peace secure for ourselves and for succeeding generations. Even as Stettinius spoke those words, we had a death grip on Germany. The rats were beginning to desert the sinking ship of fascism. Some of the rats were trapped on the way out. One of them was Benito Mussolini, who met the perfect death for a bully boy, his dead body being tossed into the public square of Milan. The clock of history read one minute before twelve, as far as the men who governed with horsewhips were concerned. Then, at 8.33 a.m. on May 7th, Dave Driscoll stepped to a mutual microphone and said, A broadcast on the Flensburg wavelength today said Germany had capitulated unconditionally. Admiral Karl Dennitz has ordered the unconditional surrender of all fighting German troops 
according to the Flensburg broadcast. This statement, attributed to the German foreign minister, was broadcast to the German people, and we quote, German men and women, a high command of the armed forces has today, at the order of Grand Marshal Dennett, declared the unconditional surrender of all fighting German troops. End of quotation. This was it. It was the signal to climb the lamppost, throw a phone book out the window, put on a party hat, and drive a jalopy down Main Street. This was it. Winston Churchill described the details of democracy's triumph. Yesterday morning, at 2.41 a.m., at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Force and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. General Beadle Smith, Chief of Staff of the United States Army, and General Francois Chavez signed the document on behalf of the Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force. And General Shishloparov signed on behalf of the Russian High Command. Today, this agreement will be ratified and confirmed at Berlin. news kept pouring in. Goebbels had committed suicide. Hitler had probably died in the Reich's chancellery. Six German field marshals, including Fatso Goering, had been captured. This was it. Victory in Europe. In public squares throughout the nation, crowds of Americans went wild. I had two sons. One of them died on the beach at Iwo Jima. My wife and I want to know how we won the victory in Europe and in Japan and what we are doing with it. U.S. morale went sky high after VE Day. The Japs were next. Now that our full weight could be thrown into the Pacific, the word passed, it won't be long now. In midsummer... One of the strangest accidents in American history occurred, momentarily taking the war off the front pages. On a foggy Saturday morning in the office of the American Society of Civil Engineers, five blocks north of the Empire State Building, Assistant Secretary James E. Yeager was dictating into his soundscriber machine a letter to Dean Crawford of the University of Michigan, when he was interrupted by the sound of a plane roaring down Fifth Avenue at less than a thousand feet. Jaeger looked up in time to see the B-25 strike the 78th and 79th floors of the Empire State. And in his excitement, he dropped his microphone. Through the courtesy of the Society of Engineers, we are now able to play for the first time on the air the only existing recording of the actual Empire State crash. It has become a little muddy in the copying from the original, which cannot be removed from the Army Air Force's files in Washington. But listen carefully... And you'll hear Jaeger say a letter to Dean Crawford, University of Michigan. Dear Dean Crawford, we are sending under under separate cover. And then the crash. Let's play it again, this most unusual record. Well, 
General Dwight D. Eisenhower, hero of the European conflict, came back and toured our east coast in a series of old-fashioned ticker tape parades. He stopped to address a joint session of Congress, too, and to remind Congress... Because I feel this so deeply, I hope you will let me attempt to express a thought that I believe is today embedded deep in the hearts of all fighting men. It is this. The soldier knows how grim and black was the outlook for the Allies in 1941 and 1942. He is fully aware of the magnificent way the United Nations responded to the threat. To his mind, the problems of peace can be no more difficult than the one you had to solve more than three years ago, and which in one battle area has been brought to a glorious conclusion. He knows that in war, the threat of separate annihilation tends to hold Allies together. He hopes we can find in peace a nobler incentive to produce the same unity. As the generals spoke here in America, in England, the British people faced a new vital problem. Winston Churchill stood before the British and asked them to decide if he should continue as their leader. He based his plea to stay in office on the fact that there was work to be done in the Pacific. I wish I could tell you tonight that all our toils and troubles were over. Then, indeed, I could end my five years' service happily. And if you thought you had had enough of me and that I ought to be put out to grass, I assure you I would take it with the best of grace. But on the contrary, I must warn you, as I did when I began this five years' task, and no one knew then that it would last so long, that there is still a lot to do. History will have to judge exactly why, but the British decided that they'd had enough of Winston Churchill, and the Labour Party's Clement Attlee became Prime Minister. In England, in a small cottage, an Englishman and his wife had just heard the news of Attlee's election. Well, darling, why don't you celebrate? My man lost, yours came in. I don't feel like celebrating, Tom. Well, but Mary, you campaigned for Attlee, and you... It isn't that. Well, then what's wrong? Well, it's hard to say exactly. In a way, even though I voted against him, I'll miss the bowler hat and the air raid suit and the cigar, the way he held up two fingers and the V sign every time we saw him at the cinema. Oh, getting sentimental? (laughs) Didn't you tell me that you women were realistic and we men were incorrigibly romantic? It isn't sentimentality, though. It's, It's much more frightening than that. Right? Yes. Something's gone out of the world, Tom. Roosevelt's dead. Now Churchill's out of office. A whole a whole era seems to be passing away. Whatever you may have thought of the two men, they were such dynamic personalities. They were they were such leaders. Who'll replace them? What kind of men? Where will they take us? A world is dying. What kind of new world is being born? A world is dying, and a new world is being born. What kind of world? A world of... As he returned from a conference in Potsdam with Stalin and Atlee, President Truman announced grimly that an atomic bomb had been dropped on Japan's city of Hiroshima. From the military viewpoint, the atomic bomb has 2,000 times the power of any bomb yet invented. Only one such bomb is equal to the payload of more than 2,000 B-29s. The atomic bomb revolutionizes the strategy and tactics of modern warfare. From the scientific viewpoint, splitting the atom and utilizing its energy means we will soon cure hitherto incurable diseases, change the weather, supply heat and power to every corner of the globe. The possibilities are infinite. Addressing his class, a university professor said, 
science, which until now was a kind of a charming mystery that made it possible to drive our car without a clutch or defrost the refrigerator in five minutes, has suddenly changed its entire aspect. It now presents man with the possibility of destroying the entire planet. The so-called chain reaction may set in. That means that too many atomic bombs dropped simultaneously may cause the entire atmosphere surrounding the globe to explode. Man is finally faced with a decision he has avoided for a millennium. He must either get along with his fellow men or see the globe go up in cosmic flames. One look at the atomic bomb and the Jap was ready to throw in the towel. Fortunately, he could not retaliate. A key researcher in atomic energy, Dr. Lisa Meitner, had been in Germany, but was forced to leave because she was a Jewess. Probably never before in history has anti-Semitism boomeranged on its originator so effectively. Mutual listeners heard Dr. Meitner in a special broadcast from Sweden as she described her escape from the Nazis. In 1938... After the occupation of Austria, the member I am still in Austria, my situation in Germany became more and more difficult, and I decided to quit secretly when I heard that on Himmler's orders, university teachers would not be permitted to leave the country. Since my Austrian passport was no longer valid in other countries, some of my Dutch colleagues had arranged with their government that I could enter Holland without a visa. I had no time to pack and had to leave most of my things, especially my scientific papers, designs, and so on, behind. So my departure was not without excitement. After a few weeks in Holland, I flew to Copenhagen and went from there to Sweden, where Professor Zietkin had made it possible for me to stay and to continue my work in his institute. I had also the opportunity to work in Copenhagen in Dr. Bohr's institute, where my nephew, Dr. Frisch, had been staying several years. In this way, we were able to collaborate on problems related with the uranium fission, the phenomenon utilized in the construction of the atomic bomb. Immediately after the atomic bomb hit Japan, Soviet Russia declared war on Emperor Hirohito. The combination was too much. The news gave the emperor and his staff indigestion over their teacups in the cherry tree garden. At 7 p.m. on August 14th, Dave Driscoll ran to a microphone with a bulletin. There's a flash, Washington, INS. The war is over. We repeat, Washington, the war is over according to INS. There it is, right on the nose. That's great news you've been waiting for. And if there isn't a tear in your eye, there isn't everyone's here in this newsroom. Aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, representatives of Japan signed the surrender documents. Mutual listeners heard an eyewitness account of that signing aboard that battle wagon. Mr. Shigemitsu has finished, and immediately behind him is General Yoshijiro Yumetsu, chief of staff of the Japanese Army headquarters. General Yoshijiro Yumetsu, who will sign for the Japanese Army and all the Japanese armed forces as personal representative of the Emperor of Japan. General Yoshijiro Yumetsu sits down. He's having no trouble with this. And in fact, he's in very much of a rush. He's sitting down and he's scribbling his name across the American document. He'll lean over in a second and scribble his name across the copy prepared for the Japanese. One copy is bound in gray. It's a beige color, really, sitting on top of the table down there. The other is bound in black. If the black copy is for the Japanese, it is certainly in effect because their nation is in mourning today on this tragic day in their history, and they all are looking extremely as if they were attending a funeral. As Americans celebrated VJ Day, they wondered about a joke that had prevailed throughout the Jap War. The Navy's Admiral Bull Halsey had predicted he would ride the Emperor's white horse up the steps of the Imperial Palace. Halsey never got around to doing it. And his ability to shoot Jap ships out of the water like ducks in the gallery made him one of the great heroes of B.J. Day. And it inspired a song. A naval officer in the Pacific had written a poem, Me, Halsey, and Nimitz, which was read by Admiral Nimitz at a victory celebration in New York. Ralph Barnhart of Mutual's music staff set that poem to music. Me, 
Halsey and Nimitz. Me and Halsey and Nimitz are having a wonderful time. What we ain't uprooting by bombing and shooting would fit on the face of a dime. The chaps are a face-saving nation, and that may be true as can be. They're taking a pushing all over the place. We're giving them arsenic, minus old lace. They're getting their kicking, but not in the face. From Nimitz and Halsey and me. Oh, me and Halsey and Nimitz are ranked in Tokyo Bay. This place is just dripping American shipping. They stretch for a hell of a way. We hear that the fighting is finished, and that is the way it should be. Remember Pearl Harbor, they started it then. We're warning them never to start it again. For we have a country with millions of men. Like Nimitz and Halsey and me. The war was over. The bloodbath that began in 1939 was over. United Nations leaders, though wanted to remind their citizens that though the conflict had ended, responsibility for world order was just beginning. Speaking in Central Park on Navy Day, President Truman outlined the major points in U.S. foreign policy. One, we seek no territorial expansion or selfish advantage. We have no plans for aggression against any other state, large or small. We have no objective which need clash with the peaceful aims of any other nation. Two, we believe in the eventual return of sovereign rights and self-government to all peoples who have been deprived of them by force. Three, we shall approve no territorial changes in any friendly part of the world unless they accord with the freely expressed wishes of the people concerned. Four, we believe that all peoples who are prepared for self-government should be permitted to choose their own form of government by their own freely expressed choice without interference from any foreign source. That is true in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, as well as in the Western Hemisphere. The United Nations leaders wanted to remind their citizens that though the conflict had ended, responsibility for world order was just beginning. Speaking before a joint session of Congress, Prime Minister Clement Attlee said, Men's material discoveries have outpaced his moral progress. The greatest task that faces us today is to bring home to all people before it is too late that our civilization can only survive by the acceptance and practice in international relations and in our national life of the Christian principle we are all members one of another. So we won the victory, and the night of war was over, and in the sunrise we set sail on the uncharted seas of world peace. But still, over my son's body, the sand whirls and the tropic winds, time without end. But still, my other son alive waits for the answer. What are we doing with the victory his brother died for? Will others have to die soon again for the mistakes of a generation? What are we doing with the victory? Listen. United Press Summary of the World Situation, December 1945. Several months after Germany's defeat and four after the surrender of Japan, the Allies are menaced by the most serious divisions. They were in dispute over four-power rule in Germany, over Russia's rule in Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, and Poland, over the results of British power in Greece. 
Russia was sharply critical of American rule in Japan, feeling she was entitled to a share in that rule because Japan is so close to her shores. Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia was making menacing gestures towards Greece. Russia and Turkey were in dispute over the Dardanelles. What were Americans doing about this? Come on, let's get into the car and go on a picnic. I can't get over it. We can buy all the gas we want to go tearing up the highway like crazy. Like crazy. Darling, you know what we can have on the picnic? Ham, bacon, butter, cake. That was what victory meant. Burn up the gas and gobble down the stakes. Europe and Asia could go hang. If the war had proven anything at all... It was that whether or not there was a brotherhood of nations, ensuring world peace was eminently a question for each and every American citizen to work at, as though it were a job, 24 hours a day. But Americans were too busy for this. They had discovered that with the new streamlined bubble pipe and a little practice, you could blow yourself a beautiful rainbow right in your own living room. Darling, that bubble pipe is sensational. Let me try it. Here, go on. Uh, dip the metal ring in the jar where the liquid soap is. Uh-huh. Uh, that's right. Ah, uh, yeah. This is still the most beautiful cafe in Berlin. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Seems even more beautiful to you when Fräulein Schmidt sings her new song. New song? Yeah. You know what it is called? No, what? Berlin will rise again. <laughs> Wunderbar is a big success here. But uh, hopeless sentiment, huh? Hopeless? Yeah. You think there is no hope for us to start again? In Argentina, in Spain, or Portugal? The Americans are dumb cups, as usual. They are in a hurry to go home. They want to forget about us. A handful of our leaders are on trial in Nuremberg. But there were eight million registered members of the Nazi party, remember? And how many million friends did they have in other countries, in every country? Ah, we could not get back on our feet for 50 years. I'm very glad you said that. Say it again. Whenever you can, wherever you can. Especially to Americans. It nourishes their favorite dream. They want so much to forget about Europe. But even so... You know what the atomic bomb means? It means that just a small group of people like us could stage a surprise atomic bomb raid that would cripple a nation 100 times our size in an hour. (laughs) The Americans are hiding their heads in the sand again. And we are helping them, too, by being very polite and harmless. Ah! Here comes the Fräulein. Listen, my friend. Berlin will rise again. Let Europe and Asia go hang. Come on, try this bubble pipe. Where did you see the different pretty colors? The war ended in August of 1945. It was a war to establish peace in our time and for centuries to come. At the end of 1945, this is what peace sounded like in Palestine. This is what peace sounded like in India. Down with British imperialism! India wants her independence! Smash every window in that building! This is what peace sounded like at home, in Detroit and in Pittsburgh. It is utterly impossible for us to grant that wage increase. The company can't afford it. Is that so? Then why can't we see the books? If that's the truth, what are you hiding the books for? I said we won't budge until you stop demanding so much money. And I said that until you meet our demands, we'll strike, strike, strike. At the end of 1945, this is what peace sounded like in China. China has been at war for more than 14 years. China is sick. China is tired. China is hungry. When Japan surrendered, the Chinese people hoped that China's agony had come to an end. But now we are in civil war. Now Ambassador Hurley has left Chongqing, and he says that the United States does not know what policy to pursue. China has looked to the strong nations of the West to lead her out of chaos. But still... Civil war goes on. Still, Chinese shiver in the cold by the roadside, 
not daring to look at ditches where the bodies of Chinese children lie dead or starvation. Have a bubble pipe. Come on, never mind listening to the news broadcast. See if you can't get some hot jive on that radio. Hey, have you heard the new tune? Brother, it's zoo, cute, and solid to boot. It goes, chickery chick, chala, chala, chickala, me in a banana. What are we doing with the victory? Dave Driscoll, director of news for WOR, returned from a flying trip around the world in November. Said Mr. Driscoll. Even during a hurried trip around the world by air, one is sharply aware of the frightening trend back toward isolationism in the United States. Congressmen and senators are constantly harassed by citizens clamoring for a quick return of American troops from overseas. The serviceman in the far corners of the globe, understandably, is impatient to return and cannot conceive why he isn't home now, much less scheduled to go home within a few weeks. He says, and this is understandable too, that he never wants to see Africa, India, China, or Europe again. As an American, I can readily understand why he feels that way. For even on a fast world tour, something very deeply rooted in our way of living leaves you as your plane flies over the coastline and heads for Europe. You don't feel that something again until you fly in over the Golden Gate Bridge at San Francisco. We are truly justified in feeling proud, almost to the point of being selfish, about the United States. But unfortunately, too many of us do not seem to realize we are living in an age that is actually far ahead of our scientific imagination, which in itself is prolific indeed. Every American should have an opportunity to see Hiroshima or Nagasaki. If he had that opportunity, he would never laugh or joke about an atom bomb, and he would realize why isolationist thinking can only lead to World War III. We cannot think of world organization and cooperation unless we are internationally minded. If we try to play the game alone and stand like an ostrich with our head in the sand, most informed American military commanders overseas believe we will have fought and won the war for nothing and find ourselves on the path to further conflict. we doing with the victory? Do you begin to see the answer now? I see that my son, who is alive, will tomorrow or next year put his life away in the attic along with his civilian clothes and then march down the street holding back the tears as he sees us waving from the doorstep. As he goes to another war, we might have prevented. Another war for which we, his parents, will be to blame. What are we doing with the victory? Do you begin to see the answer now? Because of my position, gentlemen, naturally I can't talk officially. This is off the record. But on the basis of my experience as a military commander, I assure you that the next war probably won't last more than 15 minutes. Of course, I'm speaking of the atomic bomb. A well-planned surprise raid on our east or west coast could kill a third of our population in that time. What would happen if enemy atomic raiders continued on deep into the middle of the continent is beyond imagination. And that is precisely what is going to take place, gentlemen, Unless we make the United Nations organization strong enough to keep the peace. There isn't any sense ducking the issue. The nation that certain persons believe we are going to war with is Soviet Russia. Neither the Soviet people nor the American people want such a war. It would be pointless, and probably neither of them could survive it. From the point of view of physical destruction alone... It would mean the collapse of civilization as we know it. But most Americans cannot be bothered with such problems. They have more important problems. For instance... The song goes like this. Chickery chick, chala, chala, Cute, isn't it?
given many ways to die in World War II. You could die in the Marine Corps, on beach blue or beach yellow or beach red. However, the colonel chose to designate the zone of landing operations, and it was hardly fair. For the dummies you bayoneted on Paris Island never had bayonets of their own, and the Jap did. And he was perhaps a tenth of a second faster than you were. You could die in the Navy, suffering what was medically known as something or other of the lungs, drowning, so that the pin on the strategy map in the Pentagon building might be moved half an inch closer to Tokyo Bay and provide the armchair experts at home with especially dramatic material to discuss over the bridge table. You could die in the Army, arriving at the battalion aid station just a bit too late for plasma, this being accompanied by special privileges, including the fact that your wallet and the clipping of how you broke the Indiana high school track record would be packed neatly in a box in Kansas City and mailed to your wife with official condolences. The box being placed on a shelf as a kind of tax levied on all those who loved you. A tax for half-read editorials and headlines skipped for the movie reviews. Or, if you were a general, you could die after helping win the war in an accident. To be buried far from your native soil, beside your men, in a Luxembourg cemetery. You could die as a civilian, too. As one civilian did who was six years old and now clutches his toys beneath the soil of Coventry through all eternity. 260,000 Americans will never go home again. 650,000 Americans were wounded, and many of them will go through life without arms, without legs, or without the priceless blessing of eyesight. Freedom's dead live from Cape Town to Kunming, from Midway to Narvik. Fifty million human beings died in the Second World War. This is a kind of mathematics understood only by the Lord God himself. But this you can understand. The only thing that gave the dying any meaning was the belief that it would add up to something. The belief that it would bring a decent world where men had half a chance of happiness. Where it's in the Atlantic Charter. All the men in all the lands may live out their lives in freedom from want and fear. Americans looking ahead to 1946 can remember two simple facts. Ministers representing the United Nations tried earlier this year, when the stench of battle was still strong in the nostrils, to sit down together in London, settle their differences, and draw up a blueprint for a house of peace. They failed miserably. Tonight, even as these words come to you, the United Nations ambassadors are conferring in Moscow. They announced in a communique today that they have agreed on how to draw up the peace treaties. For they're trying once again to make a dream come true. A dream of man's love for his fellow man that began almost 2,000 years ago. A dream that began with him whose birth we celebrate tonight. Americans looking forward to 1946 might well recall the words spoken by Abraham Lincoln in a message to Congress on December 1st, 1862. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. Mutual has presented 1945 in review, its annual summary of the news of the year. The program was written by Howard Merrill and directed by Roger Bauer. Your narrator was William Lang... 
and the orchestra was under the direction of Sylvan Levin. Words of the song, Me and Halsey and Nimitz, were written by Captain William Beecher. 1945 in review was prepared under the supervision of Dave Driscoll, assisted by Edith Messerand and Paul Killiam. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.